Welcome to today's episode of the award-winning Best of Left podcast. What I have for you today is a rerun, with the exception of this introduction. Now, what happened is uh, I just got back from vacation. It was an urgently needed uh, mental break. Of course, I didn't go anywhere for a vacation. I just didn't read the news. So, you know, I, I would look at some screens or I would go to a park and I would look at some nature and alternate back and forth between those. But I, I did a good job of not looking at the news or listening to the news. And I, I felt a bit like the, uh, the, the rafters who came out of the Grand Canyon a few weeks after the pandemic had begun to only then learn because they had had no service uh, for the duration of their trip to, to come out of the Canyon and realize that everything in the world had changed. The way I came to understand the, uh, the size and scope of the current events regarding police abuse and the protests and so forth is, is that Amanda told me, that uh, it's a bigger news story than the coronavirus. That no one is really talking about the virus anymore because they're talking about this instead. And that's the first time that's happened since the pandemic began. So I, I you know, I understood that it, it was a it was a big story to try to come back into uh, having stayed away from the news for my own mental health for uh, for a solid week. So uh, t- I, I have an episode that is in the works for that topic, naturally. Uh, That's not going to be this week. I already have another topic in in the works, and so logistically, that's that's what's going to come first. And besides, we like to uh, take our time, do things right, uh, speak with authority rather than uh, with hot takes of any kind. So uh, a, a full new episode on police violence and the current protests and and everything surrounding it will be coming next week. Uh, But for today, I wanted to play something that speaks to this issue, but also uh, gives us a little bit of uh, context from the past. So I have an episode about black and blue lives as uh, the, the, the concept of blue lives mattering was coming into fashion uh, about four years ago. And uh, this episode is, you know, it, on one hand, it shows how not much has changed. And on the other, if you listen carefully, you will hear some differences in the way the conversation is talked about, the way arguments are made just four short years ago compared to how they are being made today. And so I think it's a really interesting thing to to go back and to see how this conversation was being had in the very recent past as additional context for what's happening today. And then, as I say, we'll be getting to uh, the the current events uh, very soon. So clips today come from Democracy Now!, Code Switch, Counterspin, The Benjamin Dixon Show, The Daily Show, The Young Turks, Citizen Radio, The Majority Report, Edge of Sports Radio, Politically Reactive, and The Read. Dear Langston, I thought of you when I saw the son of Alton Sterling weeping at a press conference. 
It was the latest of a string of haunting public rituals of grief. The police had killed another black person. His cries made me think of you. Those are the words of Princeton professor Eddie Glaude to his son, Langston, in the wake of last week's police killings of Alton Sterling in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and Philando Castile in Falcon Heights, Minnesota. Eddie Glaude was referencing video from the moment when Alton Sterling's family addressed the media. This is Quinetta McMillan, the mother of Sterling's 15-year-old son, Cameron. At the beginning of the news conference, Cameron consoled his mother as she spoke. But after a few minutes, he broke down into the arms of supporters standing behind the two of them. The individuals involved in his murder took away a man with children who depended upon their daddy on a daily basis. My son is not the youngest. He is the oldest of his siblings. He is 15 years old. <laughs> he had to watch this as this was put all over the outlet and everything that was possible to be shown. That is 15-year-old Cameron, the son of Alton Sterling as he's being comforted by supporters um, at the news conference where his mother was speaking. First, there was the graphic video of Alton Sterling being shot at close range by the Baton Rouge police, which was horrifying. And then, uh, if that wasn't bad enough, Diamond Reynolds mm -hmm. uh, Facebook lived the aftermath of the shooting of her fiance, Philando Castile, by police in Minnesota. And she Facebook lived him bleeding to death while she was calmly explaining what led to that happening. And you can hear um, in the video that we're about to play the officer cursing in the background. Stay with me. We got pulled over for a busted tail light in the back. And the police just, he's, he's, he's covered. He they killed my boyfriend. He's licensed. He's carried to, he's licensed to carry. He was trying to get out his ID and his wallet out his um pocket. And he let the officer know that. He was, re he had a firearm and he was reaching for his wallet and the officer just shot him in his arm. We're waiting for a back. I will, sir. No worries. I will. Fuck. He just shot his arm off. We got pulled yeah. over on Larpener. I told him not to reach for it. I told him to get his hand open. He had, you told him to get his ID, sir, and his driver's license. Oh my God. Please don't tell me he's dead. Please don't tell me my boyfriend just went like that. Just keep your hands where they are, please. Yes, I will, sir. I'll keep my hands where they are. Please don't tell me this, Lord. Please, Jesus, don't tell me that he's gone. Please don't tell me that he's gone. Please, officer, don't tell me that you just did this to him. You shot four bullets into him, sir. 
He was just getting his license and registration, sir. Get the female passenger out. Ma'am, exit the car right now with your hands up. Let me see your hands. Exit now. Keep them up. Keep them up. Face Where's my daughter? You got my daughter? Face away from me and walk backwards. Walk backwards towards me. Keep walk walking. Backwards. Keep walking. Keep walking. Keep walking. Get on your knees. Get on your knees. So with us in studio is Kat Chow from the Code Switch team. Hey, Kat. Hey. This morning, you put out a call on Twitter. Um, you were asking people from Dallas if they were ready to talk themselves, if yeah. they wanted to say something about the sort of conversations they were having after what happened in Dallas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and it was such a kind of weird, hard question to ask people because this had just happened hours before Um in the middle of the night. But one of the people who I heard from was this person named Joe Jones. So Joe, he's 35. Mm. He's black. He's lived in Dallas for about three years. He moved to Dallas from Atlanta with his wife. And he was talking about how that tone of conversations he was having with his white friends, mm-hmm. um, these white acquaintances, uh, the tone of the conversations about race and policing, they were changing. Um, so I called him up over Skype and I just had him explain this to me a little bit more. The thing that really struck me was um, there've been so many shootings in the past and the conversation had really been one of either Black Lives Matter in opposition to taking any kind of stance against that kind of violence by the police or being a person who was pro-police and was willing to accept um, that violence was just a natural part of what it took to be a a cop. And I think that Philando Castile in particular, um, specifically white people, could feel and empathize in a way that I'd never seen before. I think it helps that his girlfriend and her daughter were in the car and there's a connection there for family and for young kids to never have to face that kind of violence. The other side of it was that he had a carried concealed permit and that's not something that's easy to get. And I have a lot of friends who are the vast majority of them white who have permits to conceal and carry and they take that right very seriously. And so the fact that he did follow procedure and he was reaching for his ID aren't things that slipped past them. And so folks who I'd never seen sympathize with a young black man who had been shot by a cop were able to say for the first time, I can see myself in that position. I know that he did the thing that was expected of him to do. And they reacted by starting to think about and question whether or not there really was an issue. And I think that was something I had never seen before. And so the conversation had turned to where those folks were asking questions about folks they knew who looked different than them, but had similar life situations and whether or not those people were really in danger. I definitely felt like there was this momentum, this feeling of enough is enough, especially after that Diamond Reynolds video. I felt like there were those conversations happening. Um, but then, you know, the very next day, a terrible tragedy happened and five police officers in Dallas were shot at that demonstration um, by an African-American man. And it just kind of 
we're, we're, it's, it's a different story now. It feels like a different story. First, we heard from Joe saying he was feeling good about the conversations that people were having, even though the videos were horrifying. Mm-hmm. He was feeling good about the change in tone. But now we have this horrific event. Then how does Joe feel? Did you ask him about that? Yeah, I did. I mean, and he was scared. I mean, so he said that when the Dallas Police Department tweeted that photo of a young black man as a person of interest, this young black man wearing camo, carrying a rifle, uh, walking with the marchers, Joe said that that guy looked like him, um, actually physically looked like him, hmm. same stature probably. Um, and Joe said that he actually saw like similarities in their faces. Um, and that really freaked him out. I could see my similar traits in him. And I was legitimately afraid to go out of my apartment because someone could mistake me for him and I would end up getting shot. And so uh, when I say emotionally caught up, I mean, literally, I don't spend my everyday um, life thinking about the fact that because I fit a profile of someone whom the police are looking for, um, I could be injured. And I think with Dallas police in particular, I've noticed that Um, They had just been trying really hard to do a better job of reflecting a community that is diverse and caring for that community. And so um, David Brown, specifically, but the whole police department, when I was watching um, from my house, the actual protest had done a really great job. All of those things are true, but there's something about um, seeing someone who looks like you identified as a suspect that makes you realize the power of... Um, the police, they wield, and the reality that if I'm in the wrong place at the wrong time, um, I can be misconstrued and lose my life. And so that uh, took an emotional toll on me that I think it's going to be a while before I'll have a chance to really process all the way through or probably feel safe in the way I did before this happened again. Joe told me that He says he thinks we're at the start of a conversation that's much bigger than any single moment. He's been thinking back to things like Charleston and these moments where our country has come together and really grieved together. But after all that pain subsides, everybody just returns to their opinions on whatever issue. And he says that after all of this grief that people are experiencing right now goes away, he's really worried that things will just spiral back to the way they were before or spiral into something much worse. Listeners will have heard the stories of two more black people killed by police in just two days, Philando Castile in Minnesota and Alton Sterling in Louisiana. This is the lead of the New York Times report on Sterling. Quote, The Justice Department opened a civil rights investigation on Wednesday into the fatal shooting of a black man by the Baton Rouge, Louisiana police after a searing video of the encounter, aired repeatedly on television and social media, reignited contentious issues surrounding police killings of African Americans, close quote. There's much that might be said about the way corporate media approach the reality of racist state violence. I'll just say this. You can't reignite a fire that never stops burning. 
The myopic suggestion that people are only dying and others only caring when media notice is semantic laziness, but still troubling. But it's really this locution about issues surrounding police killings of African Americans. Police killing of African Americans is the issue, the policies that justify it and the impunity that follows it. Media vagaries about issues of race and policing, another favorite, obscure the very phenomenon they pretend to address. Without acknowledging that phenomenon, it seems that people are just protesting one police killing, and then another one, and then another one. Until media can name the problem, they're part of it. What's on your mind, Q? And, uh, man, uh, I'm, I'm 19 years old. Uh, I think I've had correspondence with you a couple times on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And um, I feel mm-hmm. you so much on the desensitization of these images yeah. because I feel as though we're being programmed. I feel as though we're being programmed to see these things daily, weekly, yearly. Yeah. And it's to the point where we're just like, you know, this happened. You know, it happened. Yeah. I saw a man lose his life, and I didn't even flinch. I didn't shed a tear. Wow. That is not natural reaction to the loss of life. Right. And my question is, do we mm. move forward in an action of, because Stokely Carmichael said Dr. King's fatal mistake in his nonviolence was to think that America would see his suffering and our suffering and respond by using a conscience. Mm. That's the fatal flaw. America has no conscience. Mm. So how do we respond to these type of things? Some people will say it's the police unions. Some people will say that we need to stop voting in national elections, just vote on the local. Mm-hmm. We've done these things time and time again, and we haven't seen the results. Yeah. And I'm, I'm 19 years old. My mother cries every time I'm 10 minutes late coming home. Shit, man. This is not natural. Yeah. Wow. Um, what do we do? I mean, that's the question of the hour. How do we, you know, can this be fixed? How do we fix it? I mean, I, I don't even want to pretend to have the solutions other than to say that we got to try it all. We, we've got to do it all. You know, uh, I am a part of that group that, you know, believes that believes in what the, you know what? Yeah, I do very fervently believe in what the black Panthers did originally, what they stood for the self-defense, right? They, in, in the face of, in the face of such brutal police brutality, they armed themselves based on the law and defended themselves. And that brought a certain 
pride and respect and demanded to be treated like human beings. Uh, we needed the Panthers. We needed Malcolm who would say by anything's by any means necessary, who would say they, you know, you, you better hope for Martin, you know, because if it's not for Martin, then it's going to be a Malcolm solution. Then, then you needed the Martin, right? You needed the Martin who was going to do the peace. It's, it's like all of the above, right? But the thing is, is that I think we have been lulled to sleep to believe that they're, that the problems had gone away. And the reason all of these people, the majority of them are dead is deeply rooted in the perceptions of blackness in America and how they perceive us and how they view us through the eyes of criminality. They want to see us first as criminals. And if there's a mugshot on you and you did anything ever in your past, that's the very first thing that CNN pulled up on Alton. Uh, that's the very first thing they pulled up. Not, not the family images, not the fact that his, he had a, his, you know, children who adored him, not the jolly pictures they have of him, his mugshot, because their first impression of blackness is too often criminality and that is sometimes enough to lead to an execution a summary judgment execution right you know it, it's a split second decision if you believe that somebody is guilty and there's a there's a there's something innate in your thinking that black people are inherently dangerous then then of course your first reaction is going to be fear and that reaction based on fear leads to somebody getting killed and what that requires then is that requires black people. I'm sorry, my white progressives, just the right night. This requires us black people to make a conscious decision to either die internally or face dying publicly. We don't have the liberty and the freedom to just to just tell a police officer, hell no, you're going to respect me as a man. Right. Because if we say that there's a good possibility we're going to be dead. There's a good possibility that we're at a minimum, we're going to be slammed to the ground and arrested. We don't have the right to assert that authority because of this overwhelming fear that the black person is this barbaric creature that's going to attack you at any given moment. And I, and I, and I guess if you put it in the proper perspective of all the things black people have been through in America, then I might be scared, too, if I was a white person who was charged with carrying out the, 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 the protection of this system. But it's that it's 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 so deeply rooted that now people in I mean, and it's not even just white people, man. Do you realize black people, we mm -hmm. do it to ourselves. If they're black officers mm -hmm. who do it, it's so deeply rooted that mm -hmm. we're afraid of ourselves. So to answer your question, what is the solution? Damn it, I don't know. It's we've got to do everything mm -hmm. until we figure it out. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, you know, man. I find it just dope because I'm very deeply affected by this and I'm 19 years old and I fear every time I have to walk to, to Target or the 7-Eleven or the corner store to get something, you know, get a, get a scratch off from my mom or my, or like my cousin. And I think one of the solutions that we have to do, man, is we need to take it upon ourselves to assert and redefine blackness Yep. on a global scale talk brother we are so we are so caught up and we are so invested mm. in trying to please white folks we are so invested in trying to be above the fray and be above one another when we should come together and say how can we move progressively towards a future 
where we don't have to walk on eggshells around the people who are sworn to protect and serve us. Thomas Jefferson said in his racist journals that the black man is subhuman because he can take more pain than any other creature on earth. Hmm. He wrote this. Hmm. And that has been ingrained into certain bigots and white supremacists. It is global. Yeah. If you do something to a black person, they can take he it. won't feel it. She won't feel it. And you know what's sad, though? What's sad, though, is despite his racist connotation saying that we're subhuman, is that we've internalized this and we take the burden of the world on our shoulders. We're not allowed to be angry, you know, not publicly. We're not allowed to be sad, not publicly, but then we're seen as weak. If you're a woman and you're angry, then you're an angry black woman. If you're a woman and you're emotional, then you are, you know, you're an emotional black woman. If you're a man and you're angry and you express d- discontent and you just, uh, uh, are, are, are anger, then all of a sudden you're a threat to the system. And we internalize this for years, man, for generations to the point where we are taking on more than the average human takes on. And he thought it was subhuman. I, you know, I don't see it as a badge of honor but if anything we are stronger because we have had to be stronger and i think we're finally to the point where we're saying we're tired of being stronger fix the damn system see uh, that shooting that happened two days ago? Uh, because don't worry, if you missed it, there was another one yesterday. Uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and Falcon Heights, Minnesota. Two videos in two days of police fatally shooting two black men who, when you watch the video, did nothing to warrant them losing their lives. And you know, you know the hardest part of having a conversation surrounding police shootings in America, it, it always feels like in America... It's like if you take a stand for something, you automatically are against something else. Such a strange world to be in. You're you're either a cat's person or a dog person. You know, you're you're Red Sox or you're Yankees. You know, when you text, you either type lol or ha ha ha. I mean, personally, I'm lol. And I know a lot of people are ha 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 and I respect that. I mean, the important thing is that we can come together and hate the people who type lol, 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 lol. Because what is, that's not even a thing. You can't be laughing out loud, out loud, out loud, out loud. That, that, that's not a thing. Anyway, the point is, it's either one or the other. But with police shootings, it shouldn't have to work that way. For instance, if you're pro-Black Lives Matter, you're assumed to be anti-police. And if you're pro-police, then you surely hate Black people. It seems that it's, it's either pro-cop and anti-black or pro-black and anti-cop, when in reality, you can be pro-cop and pro-black, which is what we should all be. It is what we should be aiming for. And I mean, I, I guess technically that means you could also be anti-cop and anti-black, which, I don't know, would make you Mel Gibson, I don't know, but... But the point is you shouldn't have to choose between the police and the citizens that they are sworn to protect. You know, what makes these incidents even more painful is the fact that there are some people who don't even think that this police problem exists. 
Do you guys, do you guys remember that catcalling video in New York City, right? The one where a woman walked around in New York for a day and over a hundred men took that as an invitation to harass her. You remember that video? Yeah? Well, I've got to be honest. I remember watching that video and I was shocked. I was shocked by how extreme catcalling actually was. I didn't know because I'm a man. I did not see that in my world. And, you know, I didn't know that it could happen for blocks and a woman was harassed, you know, like over and over again. And I was, I was shocked by that. I saw that video. And I was like, I didn't think men were doing that. And I didn't think men were that concerned with the sugar content of women's breasts. I didn't know these things were happening because I hadn't seen it. You know, I, I didn't think it was that common. I, I, I thought it was only done by like construction workers and cartoon wolves. That's what I thought it was all about. But after I watched the video, I realized that there was a problem. Because seeing is believing. And yet for some strange reason, when it comes to videos of police shootings, seeing isn't believing. The police will always come out with a statement like, I I know it looks like the officer uh, shot the man even though he was subdued. Uh, But what the video doesn't show from this angle is that the policeman feared for his life uh, due to the suspect's physical actions that, again, are not visible from this angle. I always ask the question, well, why is it that the police only do that when they're the ones on camera? Yeah, because if there's ever a video of you committing a crime, the police won't be like, oh, no, I, I know it looks like the suspect is robbing the cash register in the video. <laughs> but what you don't see from this angle uh, is that, in fact, how do we know the video isn't playing in reverse? How do you know he's not putting money into the cash register? You, <laughs> you can't judge from a video. Why is the video never enough? Tamir Rice, there was a video. Eric Garner, there was a video. Laquan McDonald, there was a video. And yet still skepticism. And it's only about this. When it comes to Bigfoot, people see one blurry video and people dedicate their lives to finding him. (laughs) They leave their families, dedicate themselves to that (laughs) And you know, it's, it's hard to blame black people for not trusting the police in this country because even when the police have the responsibility of filming themselves, stuff like this happens. The two officers are now on administrative leave. Both of them wore body cameras. However, during the uh, altercation, uh, the body cameras did come dislodged. Really? The body camera became dislodged? So what, has it gotten so bad that even the cameras are like, oh, sorry, I can't be a part of this. I can't. (laughs) I've seen enough. I've seen enough. Really? The camera became dislodged? I call bull****. Yeah. I call bull because I've seen white people cameras and those things never come off. You know it's a white people video when it ends with someone screaming, I'm alive! (laughs) You know what pisses me off the most about this? I don't think there's a problem with the police, what some people say. I don't think there's a problem with the police. You You know, black people are surely doing something. Maybe the black guy did something wrong. You can't deny the racism. At some point, you have to acknowledge it. In fact, in fact, think of this. Think of the most racist thing that people can call black people. Think of that. The most racist thing people say, they call them monkeys, baboons, gorillas. And yet, when people watched a video of an actual gorilla being shot for dragging a child, not only was there more outrage for the gorilla, the organization responsible for killing the gorilla admitted that there were systemic problems that needed to be fixed. 
A criminal investigation is now focused on how a little boy fell into a gorilla enclosure at the Cincinnati Zoo. Reports show the zoo is making changes to prevent tragic accidents like this from happening again. That's for a gorilla. They're making changes for a gorilla. One gorilla, one. It's a, it's a truth. It is a truth. I don't I, like I shouldn't even be afraid to say it. America has a problem within its police force. And although this is a problem that disproportionately affects black people, it's not just a black problem. This is an American problem. Because just today there was a third video, this time of a white kid getting shot by the police while he was lying down on the ground. This is an American problem. Everyone is involved. And with all this evidence on video, surely the least America can expect from its police is for them to admit that there is a problem. Because you can't fix something until you admit that it's broken. And you're probably saying, oh, but Trevor, what does it help? What does it help to just admit that you have a problem? Well, the Las Vegas Police Department did just that. In 2011, they admitted that there was a potential for bias. They admitted that there was a better way for police to interact with suspects. And so just by acknowledging that and training their officers on how to assess and de-escalate a situation, they were able to decrease the amount of police shootings by 36%. 36%, which is not perfect. I know it's not perfect, but at least they're doing something. And if the police can get their together in a city where you can rent a tiger and then get married to a Filipino Elvis Presley, <laughs> then in my opinion, the rest of America has no excuse. a lot of news coverage in the mainstream media of the peaceful Black Lives Matter protests that happened throughout the country. Um, but we did some coverage of that, and I want to show you some videos. So Jordan Sheridan, who's our reporter on the ground, was actually in New York City, and he talked to uh, a few different protesters, and I want to show you both videos. Let's go to the first one. And it's heartbreaking to see this girl, but she's a representative of Black Lives Matter. And you see the pain in her, her face, her reaction to all of these people who are getting shot and killed throughout the country. And her solution is not violence. Take a look. Fucking disgusting. I do not understand why this keeps. <laughs> when will they stop? <laughs> Sorry. It's fucking disgusting, and I do not understand why it continues to happen, and nothing is. We rally in the streets. <laughs> we protest. <laughs> One thing that really stood out to me in that video was that, you know, not only do you have this young woman crying and distraught, you look behind her and you see people from all different backgrounds as part of this movement, okay? This is not a black and white issue. This yep. is not black people against white people, okay? The nuances never get discussed. And... That video spoke volumes to me because it shows that there is unity that for some reason doesn't get any coverage at all. Yeah, but her human emotion there was inciting violence. Her human emotion yeah. was saying that people should attack police officers. You heard her say those words, even though you didn't. The t tears in her face were obviously to incite violence. 
So when whether it's a celebrity like Beyonce or it's real people at these protests that, that we cover on TYT Politics, all they're saying is, please stop killing us. That's not too much of a ask. And so... Let's talk about a reasonable, reasonable request. And when yeah. you say stop killing us, no, that does not mean we should kill you. They never say that. They never say it. And all people do is... they. And part of the reason the right wing assumes that is because that is their reaction. And they showed it today. Their reaction is, let's go to war. That's it. It's us versus them. It's black versus white. Obama did this. Obama did this. And let's defend our cops. And let's, you know, uh, do all these things. So since their natural reaction is, let's go to violence, they think our reaction is, let's go to violence. But we didn't say that. She didn't say that. She was crying because she's like, I, I, I feel that I'm in danger. I feel that my loved ones are in danger. And I want to fix that. I don't want the danger. I want less violence, less danger, more justice. This just popped up, and I assume a lot of our stories are going to be themed the same. Mm-hmm. Um, but apparently, the Dallas shooter mm-hmm. was like banned from a bunch of like black uh, groups. So they were like aware of him. Yeah, on Twitter, uh, ASE. He used to work at HuffPost Live. Um, I forget his real name because the Twitter's just ASE. Um, but yeah, apparently he was banned from some like uh, hardcore like black activist groups. Wow. Um, I didn't get to read the article, but that just popped up on my feed, and I just wanted to. That's probably like the most recent update. Oh yeah, there. the Daily Beast has an article about it. Blacklisted by Black Power groups as quote unquote unstable. Yeah. Wow. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, also, um, we said this on yesterday's episode, but uh, Michael Johnson was sent home from Afghanistan for stealing women's underwear. Oh, I, no, I didn't know the specifics of it. We knew it was like we, sexual, sexual harassment. harassment because that's originally all they said, but it was for stealing women's underwear. Um, yeah. I mean, well, yeah, it's so dangerous and disingenuous when you say like Black Lives Matter protests where it's like, well, no, it's a black person who, even if he wasn't, when you say, like, Black Lives Matter, you think that, like, Little DeRay, like, showed up armed and started shooting cops. Right. Or, like, Netta. Like, you think of, like, protesters. Right. Where it's like, well, this guy, why aren't we talking about him being a soldier? Why aren't we talking about maybe PTSD? Why aren't we talking about uh, that he was a misogynist and sexual harasser? Why aren't we talking about toxic masculinity? Why aren't we right. talking about, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So et cetera. this is the specifics of that story. So Ken Moore of the Collective Black People's Movement said he was asked to look into Johnson by an unidentified black activist group. When he discovered the Army veteran was discharged for sexual harassment, he labeled him, quote, unquote, unfit for recruitment. No. Um. Yeah, 
Uh, Malik Shabazz, former chair of the new Black Panther Party, told the Daily Beast that the background check system described by more effectively blacklisted Johnson from membership in black nationalist and black liberation groups across the country. Yeah. What This is a quote from Moore. Once you're blacklisted by the alert that we put out, that's a wrap. Um, which, by the way, I have to say, is a more effective way of ke- keeping out creeps than a lot of other reputable organizations oh yeah like the fact that he was accused of sexual harassment and the black panthers were like done peace nope sorry yeah that's really a point like how many people do we have still like lurking around our community right like do you think a frat would ban a guy for no. alleged sexual harassment no nope um so right. school schools don't ban uh people for actual convicted yeah. rape. <laughs> give a shit uh so i guess applaud the black panthers for having a really strict screening yeah process. fuck yeah that's amazing that's awesome Let me play this um, this clip from Dr. Brian Williams. He is a um, he's a surgeon who was operating on uh, on dying Dallas. I think he was the officer. presiding surgeon. Okay. And it's pretty amazing. Uh, it's also just sort of amazing to hear someone be this frank about this. I mean, because look, you have this circumstance where. Um, and the irony is that Dallas has made great strides in its policing. And um, uh, they went from, like, they dropped the number of shootings there. They've just done made great strides. Um, and so some lunatic. And, you know, as soon as you heard about this, you assumed, like, you know, ex-military, right? I mean... Yeah. Uh, and every time I, I hear of situations like that, Martin Luther King had said something to the effect of like every bomb that we drop in Vietnam explodes in the cities in this country. And there was a certain inevitability when you send people, these many people into a, a situation like Afghanistan and Iraq that People are going to come back. There's going to be a certain percentage of come back with real problems. Saw this with the uh, DC sniper, I think it was too. Uh, and, uh, but here is this guy, um, Brian Williams, talking about the, the difficulty. Obviously, he wants to treat these, um, these police officers who are just there basically, you know, dealing with, uh, these peaceful protests. Um, but also he has these feelings as a black man about the police because he has a lived experience, which suggests being black and dealing with police officers is a problem in this country, which is true. 
This experience has been very personal for me and a turning point in my life. There was the added dynamic of officers being shot. We routinely care for multiple gunshot victims. But the preceding days of more black men dying at the hands of police officers affected me. I think the reasons are obvious. I fit that demographic of individuals. But I abhor what has been done to these officers and agree with their families. I understand the anger and the frustration and distrust of law enforcement, but they are not the problem. The problem is the lack of open discussions about the impact of race relations in this country. And I think about it every day that I was unable to save those cops when they came here that night. It weighs on my mind constantly. This killing, it has to stop. Black men dying and being forgotten, people retaliating against the people that are sworn to defend us. We have to come together and end all this. When I see police officers eating at a restaurant, I pick up their tab. I even one time a year or two ago, I bought one of the Dallas PD officers some ice cream when I was out with my daughter getting ice cream. I want my daughter to see me interacting with police that way so she doesn't grow up with the same burden that I carry when it comes to interacting with law enforcement. And I want the Dallas police to also see me, a black man, and understand that I support you, I will defend you, and I will care for you. That doesn't mean that I do not fear you. That doesn't mean that if you approach me, I will not immediately have a visceral reaction and start worrying for my personal safety. But I will control that the best I can and not let that impact how I deal with law enforcement. I mean, that is... Um I mean, that's an amazing statement. Just the, the, the myriad of mixed emotions and feelings um, that that guy has. Really, uh, I mean, I think that captures a lot of the sort of the dynamic. Um, and here's a guy, too, you know, you imagine as a, a surgeon who is, you know, theoretically less subject to police presence in the same way. I mean, part of the reason why he fears police officers is he probably has had experiences, um, despite the fact that he may live and maybe because of the fact that he may live in a nicer neighborhood uh, or, uh, you know, drive a nicer car because he's a surgeon. I mean, it's uh, amazing. I have to, I mean, I just have to say, like, it, I think this is definitely one of those issues where obviously some of it's socioeconomic, but it does not matter how much well, that's affluence you have, just what yes. you're saying. I mean, but, 
Yeah. If you are, um, I can tell you that if you are a 17 year old black kid growing up in, just to put it in New York City terms, Manhattan terms, in the West Village versus the Bronx, your interactions oh, with police the whole officers. the neighborhood is just more policed, period. Exactly. Yeah. But nevertheless, you're still going to experience, you're still going to have a certain amount of stories. I mean, I think, you know, it's much harder for a guy who is, um, a, uh, you know, I don't know, working a day job to, I think, and being harassed on a regular basis by the police to have that level of, like, sort of, um, ambiguity. <laughs> with the relationship with the cops where we can, we can reach out. I mean, look, it's just easier if you, you know, if you I have just, more money and you're going to, uh, you know, uh, you're in a neighborhood that is, it's just easier for you to sort of be able to do that outreach, even if you have those same fears. These are the words of Scoop Jackson. Once they became connected, the spark was lit. The minute, I'm sorry, I forgot the times in which we lived. The second, the media, both social and mass, packaged Alton Sterling's and Philando Castile's deaths at the hands and guns of non-black police officers, it became the all-too-proverbial straw that broke the elephant in the room's back, which led to the breaking of this country's heart. One death in Baton Rouge, one in Falcon Heights, Minnesota, five in Dallas, all senseless, all inexcusable, none random, or by mistake. Yet depending on who you speak to, interact with, or share beliefs, all unnecessary, but understood. Not one of these killings should make sense to any of us, but unfortunately to too many, they do. Many of those on the police force disagree with, yet understand, the deaths of Sterling and Castile. Many black people totally and categorically disagree with the route Micah Xavier Johnson took to retaliate against the police climate that too many black people have been living in for far too long, but many of us understand. And as wrong as that is, that is our truth in America. This is America's new reality. OJ got nothing on this. Oh, and George Zimmerman's walking around free. Johnson's reaction was to the packaging of the killings, of the culmination of killings of black men that he felt were an extension of him by being killed by police sworn to protect and serve. His reaction was not toward the unity on display at the rally in Dallas that night or at the Black Lives Matter movement that he had issues with as well. It was at the abuse of a power structure that allows the killing of 25-year-old black men who theoretically look like him to be almost accepted as the suspect-by-birth norm. 
All anger reaches a boiling point. Unfortunately, human beings don't believe that all anger has outlets. And when the buildup forces the words f*** it to escape their souls, death usually follows. Which honestly makes America no different from so many other countries. Yet it remains the country that refuses to claim it, to acknowledge that not only are we not different, we aren't any better. Dallas Police Chief Dave Brown stepped to a microphone and said that the police, quote, aren't used to hearing the words thank you enough for the people that need them the most, end quote. At what point does he think that black society is used to hearing I'm sorry from the people that are supposed to protect us when many of us are unjustifiably killed by those people who are apparently looking for a thank you? But power and privilege never surrenders an apology. Not even when cases of wrongful death pile up. Not even when there's video evidence that black life doesn't matter. Black people have been in this crisis with police for a long time. Damn near since there was an us and a them. And while this may be a crest of the issue with both us and them, this recent threefold of murder at the hands of both is not the end of the issues with them to us. Here's what's very real. America is no longer about hope. It is about survival. America doesn't want a harmonious society, never has. They want what they've always had, a society built on ruling class and hierarchy where pyramids aren't only schemes but the way of life. Harmony in America means that all others follow the rules of one. Harmony in America means all Americans must fall in line. U.S. Attorney General Loretta Lynch said in her official government news conference in response to it all, quote, We are a nation and we are a people and we stand together, end quote. Truth told, no we aren't, no we don't. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. But instead of me telling you, today's activism comes in the form of our last two clips with some people laying out what needs to happen better than I could anyway. I know there's definitely uh, white people listening right now who want to help and are sort of like that... uh, that white woman in the movie Malcolm X that starred Denzel Washington, <laughs> who who walks up and goes, "What can a white person like myself, who isn't prejudiced, what can I do to help you and, and further your cause?" What would you say to a, a, a white person right now who wants to help but is somehow scrambling for what to do? So, <clears throat> I'll say a couple of things. Now, you know, I hope folks don't get get too offended by what I'm about to say. So just brace yourself. Put your hands yeah. on your on your chair and just just hold on, baby. Hold on. Just let me finish before yeah. you just shut yeah. me off. Yeah. You have to do your own work of learning about the oppression of race, white supremacy, racial hierarchy. What does that mean? There's a great organization we work with called Showing Up for Racial Justice. Uh, S-U-R-J, I think, dot org or dot com. Yeah. I would commission every white person uh, that is really serious about leaning into this moment around kind of ending racial hierarchy to take seriously the trauma that you have experienced, that all of us have experienced related to racial hierarchy. Do your own reading, your own studying around other white folk, because I have found in my organizing work over the years that most white folks showing up in racial justice spaces don't want to sound like a racist, so they can't bring their full self. 
right? And so sometimes you need to be in an affinity group to kind of sound as terrible as you probably will say. <laughs> and, and, but you, I thought you, you said as terrible as you are. No, no, you, no. You, soft, not, you, you just yeah. sound terrible, yeah, just like yeah. I sound terrible, right? But you got to sound terrible around people that you really believe won't hold it against you <laughs> and, and give you a chance. Cause around your family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but you need someone to check you, though. It's like, yo, that that wasn't cool. Like yeah. some, some of our family, like, they'll, they'll, they'll match and then... And then raise, raise our terrible. I see your horribleness, and I raise you with some slurs you've never heard right, before. Right, right, right. So <laughs> I, I think it's imp- that's important, right? Like find some spaces where you can indeed um, do some work apart from people of color, black folk, brown folk, because we're carrying our own cross around this stuff, and it's very hard to have to educate white people while we're trying to like get free at the same time. Um, the second thing I'll say is, in these moments, what does it look like to suspend? your uh your your um wisdom as the the superior and primary wisdom um preach there is a certain kind of of default in a lot of folks white folks in particular in in this social society we've been socialized to think white is right mm-hmm. right and everything else is suspect you know um and sometimes you have to suspend that that um that trigger that automatic assumption that you know you have thought of something that these people around you haven't thought of oh the classic like <laughs> how come black people don't just raise their kids it's like uh, well, dang yeah, like what do yeah. you think we try to do around here yeah. i can't raise my kid if if yeah. you know he can't walk to the store play in the park or whatever yeah. whatever yeah so it just just like like swallow that for a little while and and just and just and just be there follow the leadership of directly impacted people follow the leadership the ideas the thoughts bring your gifts and tools put it out there freely sometimes your ideas will be implemented sometimes they won't get used to not having to always be driving the bus get used to riding in the bus get used to being left off the bus mm-hmm. get used to just being a part of a team, a squad, because I do think that um, we need everybody to get free. It's not going to be only because black folk uh, are working in black spaces and Latino folk are working in Latino spaces and, and Asian folks are working in Asians. And they, like, that's not the way God creates the world. I, I think that we have to have a radical interdependence upon uh, one another, but it's hard to do it when um, you haven't done your own work and when you're not willing to follow some of the folks that are uh, that I think are thinking about this a lot more uh, than the average person. We do need a total overhaul of the police departments, but you can change all the policy you want to. If people still have these bigoted thoughts and feelings in their in their heads, in their hearts, then they're still going to discriminate against us, period. And and that's where it gets so frustrating for me, because as an adult now, I see how big this problem is. 
Like, I see how deep this is in the American culture, and I don't see how we'll ever get over it. And it just makes me feel so fucking helpless. Because I don't see how anything, I don't see how it'll really ever get any better, especially when white people, the people who could most help affect change, sit back like, oh, well, that's black people's issue. I've said, I've said on the show before, White people are the ones who have to hold each other accountable. Y'all who listen to this show or listen to all of these things and you claim to agree with it, y'all need to not just agree with it and be like, I have done good today because I feel similar to the way that Crystal and Kid Fury feel. You need to be telling people this shit. You need yeah. to be marching. Y'all are the ones who are going to make a Argue difference. Argue with your racist relatives. Go out in demonstrations and protests. Be there say something this whole movement is about the fact that they don't give a fuck about us they don't respect the fact that we're being murdered so what makes you think that they're going to respect what we have to say they don't give a fuck about what we're talking about Ooh. but they give a fuck when it comes out of your white ass right, mouth right. so you need to be the ones who are out these fucking protests standing in the front so they're not throwing grenades and tear gas mm-hmm. and tasing people you need to be the ones who are making these signs you need to be the ones calling into the CNNs and the MSNBCs. You need to be the ones who are sitting here enacting this change because they don't give a fuck about what we're talking about. They're going to wait for us to stop marching. They're going to wait for it to blow over so they can start killing people again. Yeah. I'm not worried about no motherfucking marches. Honestly, I'm not thinking about none of that. I'm thinking about the next step. I'm thinking about which congressmen, which senators, which doors and and and. Yeah. Which buildings I got to knock down, right. which building doors I got to knock on, who I got to call email to make sure that these things are different. Because they don't give a fuck about us walking out in these streets. They're going to beat our asses. They're going to look for our activists and they're going to lock their asses up. They're going to do all this extra shit. And they're all of it. Yeah. All of it is in an effort to remind you where their idea of order stands. I want y'all to remember that those of us who have privilege need to be the ones to stick up for the ones who don't. And for white people of all genders, that means sticking up for black people when you know that we are disproportionately the victims of police violence. And for black men, it means sticking up for black women. And for those of us who are straight, it means sticking up for the gay ones. And for those of us who aren't trans, it means sticking up for the trans ones. Like it goes on and on and on. I may be a black queer woman, but I still have some privileges in this society that other people do not. And it is my responsibility to stick up for those people. It is my responsibility to, to stand up and say, hey, Hey, I am a black woman and I'm not going to let y'all treat my trans sisters this way. Because guess what? It affects all of us. Right. Regardless of what side you're on or where you at. It affects us because every single time we hear about this, it hurts us. And we have to worry about whether or not we going to be next or somebody that we love is going to be next. It makes us feel like we're worth nothing. Like we go out into these streets and we bust our asses. We have moms and grandmas that take care of your white ass kids. We have moms and grandmas who take care of your white ass mamas and your old ass grannies. We have all these people who are out here doing good for their community. And we are still being made to feel like we have zero value and it isn't right. And even if you don't agree with all lives matter, it still affects you because guess what? We ain't going to shut the fuck up. And you're going to have to hear about this every single time that it happens. And as much as you, because all of the pushback from that side of things is an effort to get us to shut the fuck up Mm -hmm. and we're not going to. So if you would like for us to stop, then all you've got to do is make a few necessary changes. Do better. That's it. There's Be on the right side of history. I don't see what the, I don't see the difficulty in, in getting your police departments to treat 
every citizen with the same amount of of respect to do your job the way that you are trained to do your job. Because I know that you aren't trained to just go up and shoot somebody because you just can. Like, I know that's not right. how that works. So until people start making the necessary changes and start seeing the fact that just because somebody's skin color or sexuality or gender is of, uh, is a kind that you don't understand or that you're not too familiar with, or a type that you ain't been around too much in your life doesn't mean that that person's breath and life and blood and bone and marrow is not significant. Because, girl, you didn't make this earth. And, sweetheart, this wasn't your land. You stole it. So if we really want to get into the meat of things, get the fuck over yourself. The system has been far past dead. Yeah. It's 2016 out here, girl. And we need to move forward. Y'all are the ones that are keeping us from doing that. We would love nothing more than be able to just go to the fuck and Beyonce concerts and watch our sports and have our jobs and live and be happy. All of us, every color, every shade, all of it. We would love nothing more, but you all keep us behind because of ignorance that has been ingrained into this fucking country since you came over here and shot up the Native Americans. So I just wish that one day you could look past it. Nobody's trying to come take your white homes from you or, or or your money. Nobody's trying to like, nobody is trying to turn y'all into a whole bunch of like toads. We just want to live. And I don't see why that is so complicated or why it's something worth arguing about. But trust and believe this shit ain't over. It's not going to end until there's change. We just heard clips starting with Democracy Now! featuring the family's reaction to the death of Alton Sterling. Code Switch played some of the audio from the Facebook Live video of Philando Castile's death and talked about how the reactions from some white people are actually differing a bit in this particular case. Counterspin corrected the record that none of the recent killings reignited anything because the fire never stopped burning. Benjamin Dixon spoke with a caller about the experience of constantly being confronted with deaths of black and brown people. The Daily Show pointed out what should be blatantly obvious to all, that a person can support the movement for black lives and not want police officers to be killed at the same time. The Young Turks featured the response of one Black Lives Matter protester to the Dallas shooting. Citizen Radio explained that the Dallas shooter was not only not a member of any black activist group, but that he had actually been banned from joining. The Majority Report played the nuanced reaction from the presiding surgeon at the hospital during the Dallas shooting. Dave Zirin on Edge of Sports Radio read the words penned by Scoop Jackson in response to these three events. Politically Reactive talked with Pastor Michael McBride about what white people who want to get involved in the movement for black lives can do. And finally, we just heard the host of The Read lay out a similar call to action for people who experience any kind of privilege to stand shoulder to shoulder with those fighting for their lives. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay, it's Kyle from Cleveland. I'm actually stuck driving across Ohio in a place where I can't get internet. So I'm stuck listening to AM radio, and this is in the aftermath of the Dallas shooting. What I'm going to tell you right now is not going to shock most listeners, but I listened to the police chief's press release 
and he decided not to give the identity of the shooter, but some of the things the shooter said to police. Starting with, I am mad about Black Lives Matter. I am mad at white people. I'm mad at cops. I want to shoot cops, especially white cops, yada, yada. So I listened to that, and first of all, I find it very deplorable that they're giving out any information about any of this until, you know, any kind of motive, until we get all the facts in. But again, you know, campaign to turn the conversation in favor of the police. What kills me is that he said that the guy was killed in the standoff when they put a device on the extension of a bomb robot, which is a nice way of saying they blew his ass up, the U.S. citizen. They used a bomb and blew him up. This doesn't get any more military than possible. Why aren't we just giving the police goddamn grenade? The last time U.S. citizens were bombed by the authorities, I believe, was uh, the MOVE organization. Now, that being said, I'm driving through the middle of nowhere... And, of course, AM Radio has the blaze with Mr. Glenn Beck. Again, I'm not going to surprise anybody here, but it's amazing. The Fox News break right before the show had the excerpts from the police chief's discussion. But the whole part about being mad about Black Lives Matter was dropped. The Fox News clip only started with, I'm angry at white people. I want to kill cops, especially white cops. So you see Fox is already putting their, you know, their fearful spin on it. And then when the Glenn Beck show does come on, he proceeds to say that he was killed by police when their bomb, when their bomb robot touched an IED that was close enough to the guy to kill him. So for anyone, most liberals or progressives like me don't sit here and listen to the other side and their programming. And I'm going to tell you, this is where I give Wade a lot of credit. Um, Wade identifies with a lot of conservative ideals, yet he puts himself out of his comfort zone to listen to the other side. I do, I try, I should say, I try to do the same myself. And I can see why people have the mindset that they have. And, you know, the next step is trying to maybe get people to see the truth and about how their trusted media is lying to them. But anyway, Jay, I, like I said, I'm not surprising anyone here, but I just think we all need to be aware about how quickly sides will obscure facts, edit sound bites, and steer the conversation that best suits their ideals instead of objectively reporting facts. Thanks, Jay. Bye. Hi, Jay. This is Charlie from Cleveland, formerly Charlie from Cincinnati. Uh, so I just wanted to share an analogy that I've developed and deployed over the past couple weeks uh, to explain to my fellow white people why black America is justifiably outraged. Uh, it's also kind of useful, I think, for quashing the rebuttal that black-on-black -black crime is the quote-unquote real problem and that BLM should quote-unquote care more about that. So the analogy here is between law enforcement and health care. 
Uh, Black-on-black crime and all violent crime, really for that matter, are akin to pervasive and deadly but rather intractable medical issues like cancer, heart disease, which we're all well aware exist. We're actively working to combat them and making substantial progress towards resolving them. But they're very difficult problems that simply take a lot of time and resources to overcome. And we understand that in the process of treating these diseases, there may in fact be risks involved. A brain tumor, for instance, might pose an imminent threat to a patient, so they get surgery even though the surgery is risky. Now, in such a case, we accept that the patient could die even if they're treated by the most adept surgeon. Similarly, even the most adept law enforcement officials might have to use lethal force when confronting an active shooter, such as was the case in Orlando and Dallas. But when cops kill civilians who don't pose a threat, or pose a threat that could be easily handled without violence, it's as if the patient were to go to their local physician for a strep throat test, only to have the physician gouge out their tonsils with the swab and leave them to bleed out on the floor without offering further assistance. Perhaps a physician would even choose to call their union rep before calling an ambulance. Now to deepen the analogy further, you might imagine that the patient with strep throat only got sick in the first place because of centuries of racist policies and systematic impoverishment that left them without access to proper housing, good nutrition, and preventative care. Thus, it isn't even the patient's fault that they got strep throat, and they prefer to not have to deal with the doctor at all. If the patients at doctor's offices were routinely being murdered when receiving basic health care in the same way that people of color are routinely being killed and during traffic stops and while experiencing unsolicited harassment on the street, we'd want the doctors responsible barred from practicing medicine and brought to justice in court. Now why should the situation be any different for police? Don't the two professions theoretically share the common goals of promoting public well-being, protecting individuals from harmful entities, and above all, to do no harm? We can also imagine that if there were an epidemic of incompetent and violent doctors, people would stop going to the doctor for help, and disease would spread like wildfire. Crime prevention is no different. We can't reduce crime if no one trusts the police. Better police-community relations are a necessary precursor to reducing crime. If right-wingers really cared about the issue of black-on-black crime, they'd work to reduce police violence. But they don't care, and that's why they opt to engage in racist victim-blaming instead of productive and critical thought. So I realize that analogy is somewhat imperfect, but I thought I would share, and I can tell you it's been quite successful, uh, for me at least, in explaining to some of uh, my less-informed colleagues uh, sort of what the, the basics of this issue are and where the anger in the community is coming from. One more quick note before I wrap up this voicemail. I just moved to Cleveland a couple weeks ago, and I am actually planning on going to the RNC on Monday uh, to protest. I'm going to be at the Organize Ohio protest in the afternoon, uh, and I'll probably be milling about in the morning. I was planning on uh, fangirling the Democracy Now! live broadcast. Um, So if anyone in the Cleveland area uh, would want to meet up, uh, I would definitely uh, like to to do a little networking up here. I don't really know anyone, uh, and maybe there'll be some other uh, Best of the Left listeners who are planning on going to that same protest. So yeah, if you want to meet up, just shoot me an email. Um, email address is cmichel28 at gmail.com. That's cmichel28. Thanks, guys. Have a great day. And thank you, as always, Jay. Keep up the great work. 
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Those last two clips in the show hopefully made it clear what white teammates and co-conspirators need to do. Uh, But I just want to put a little finer point on it and tell you about some organizations that can help. Now, clearly, black people are taking risks every day to fight for their liberation. To truly be supportive of this movement, white people need to ignore any hesitation stemming from our privilege and take risks too. That's why our activism today is basically to get more angry than you already are and get in the fucking streets. If you are white and want to educate yourself and find out how you can join the fight to end oppression, here are some of the organizations in the movement for black lives that you should be aware of and that can provide the resources you need to become part of the movement and get off the sidelines. First of all, Surge, that's S-U-R-J, showing up for racial justice. Surge is a national network of groups and individuals organizing white people for racial justice. You can find resources, actions, chapters, and partner organizations in your area at showingupforracialjustice.org. Next, the Advancement Project. The Advancement Project is a multiracial civil rights organization founded by a team of veteran civil rights lawyers to develop and inspire community-based solutions based on the same high-quality legal analysis and public education campaigns that produced the landmark civil rights victories of earlier eras. You can join campaigns, access resources and news around voting rights, the school-to-prison pipeline, and more at advancementproject.org. Next, Hands Up United. These guys are focused in uh, Missouri. I just met up with them in St. Louis when I was at Netroots Nation. Hands Up United aims to fulfill the political void that remains from the historical archives of the black power movement and strongly believes liberation for oppressed black and brown people will be achieved solely through self-determination coupled with traditional and non-traditional means of political education. Their community programs include Books and Breakfast, the Tech Institute, food and clothing disbursement, and oppression support groups. You can learn more at handsupunited.org. Next, Dream Defenders. Dream Defenders is an uprising of communities and struggle, shifting culture through transformational organizing that believes that liberation necessitates the destruction of the political and economic systems of capitalism and imperialism, as well as patriarchy. They also believe that nonviolent resistance is, quote, the only morally and practically sound method open to oppressed people in their struggle for freedom, unquote, and are fundamentally committed to nonviolence as their means of struggle against a violent oppressor. You can learn more at dreamdefenders.org. Next, the We Are Here movement and their Racial Justice in America moonshot campaign. It's requesting a radical transformation in racial justice and equality with the push for $150 billion directed at poor communities over the next 10 years to provide access to equal education, healthcare, quality housing, training and jobs, nutrition, and an overhaul of the criminal justice system. You can sign the petition at weareheremovement.com backslash moonshot. And then finally, the Million Hoodies Movement for Justice. 
The Million Hoodies Movement for Justice is a racial justice membership organization confronting anti-black racism and systemic violence. Their mission is to build the next generation human rights leaders to end mass criminalization and gun violence through grassroots organizing, advocacy, and education. You can learn more at millionhoodies.net.